Welcome to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Delighted today on Planet Pod to be joined by Chris Francis, who's um, the senior site manager here at Salt Home uh, Reserve, which is an RSBB reserve. Um, but, but oddly enough, and you'll see this from the photos that we, we, we're going to put up on the website, it's right in the middle of what feels like a very industrialised landscape. Chris, this is really unusual, isn't it? It, it is. I mean, the Tees Estuary 150 years ago was a vast estuary, a, a river that sort of meandered and sort of spread out in a wide delta. Uh, between the south, which is your Middlesbrough and Redcar areas, up to the north with Hartlepool, uh, and a fantastic spot for wildlife. And then there's Teesside. I mean, Middlesbrough didn't exist as a town in 1800. It was about 20 houses by 1820, and then by 1900, it's 100,000 people live in the town. And that was all linked to the uh, iron industry and the coal industry. Uh, and then the chemical industry became very big in this, this area. So the site we're on now actually was reclaimed uh, from this wonderful estuary that was here, uh, and the impact of industry in those days was fairly negative and the seals that used to be here disappeared and vanished from the estuary. So massive changes. This was Rhinefield, this was a site ICR used. Uh, there's a salt pan about 1,000 feet down here uh, and they uh, withdrew the, the brine and used that for their chemical processes. So the site now, with a quite a saline site, although the water's all from the rain, it absorbs the salt from the, the ground underneath it. Uh, and yeah, we've created something fantastic, I think, in terms of the, the landscape here, which is wet grassland. We've got lapwing that breed here, Abaset that breed here, uh, and just a very important wintering site uh, and migrant site for birds that are moving between the north and the south. And need we're a motorway service station for all these birds that uh, move around the, the northern hemisphere and need somewhere to stop off for a, a bit of a rest and a, and a, and a, a refreshment break and before they'll move on. Some stay for quite a long periods of time. Others are here for a, a matter of hours and then move off to the Arctic or back to Africa, depending on the season and where, where they're going. Yeah, and it, it's, it's interesting, is it? We're looking out of the window of the upper part of this fabulous new hide, which I'm going to get you to tell us about in a moment. And, and I can see across, you know, across the water and the, and, and, and the grass and the flats, I can see containers and, you know, factory chimneys and, you know, the, 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 the bridges and the evidence of industry going on all around us. But... But what's really interesting, I think, is the fact that these birds seem particularly, you know, they ignore this. They're not the least perturbed about having all of this stuff going on right on their doorstep. So, so yeah. is this adaption by, by wildfowl, or is it just that they, they focus on the water yeah. and the potential feeding ground? I think that they, they know what they're after, really. I mean, the industry around us is relatively, I mean, it's big, but it's not creating a huge amount of disturbance for them, so they've got a safe area to come on and... Uh, feed and roost and all the rest of it. The river's not far away, so it's, the river's this corridor for the birds. Uh, so although it looks like the shrub industry, we're very close to the river, about less than a mile. The transporter bridge, you can see this fantastic structure mm. built in 1911 with a little gondola where the cars get taken across. Uh, I was on it yesterday and uh, we had to stop while a ship came past and then we off we went again. So a fantastic area. And it's, I mean, it is the very, if you're driving your car around this country, there's a fair chance uh, the fuel that's powering it has come in and been processed uh, and the Seagull Sands area here, there's a huge chemical complex here that produces uh, your petrols and your diesels and all the other 
uh, oil-related fuels. Uh, I think it's a fantastic landscape. I was, I was brought up on Teesside, so although many people think, oh my goodness, look at that, I think it's brilliant. And he says some of these historic structures you can see. Um, I mean, what the hill you can see, the distance Roseby Topping, which is a, a landmark in the area, uh, is the Matterhorn of the North, because it was, it was a, a sugarloaf shape and then about 150 years ago, because it had been mined for iron, one half collapsed. To get this wonderfully shaped, iconic shaped structure on the edge of the North Yorkshire Moors, which is only a matter of five miles from here, beyond the North Yorkshire Moors. So we think it's industrial, but you go up into the Durham Dales, you've got the coastline, uh, Triple SI all the way from Hartlepool, all the way down to um, Whit- Whitby and Scarborough on the Yorkshire coast. So people often see this as being a non country area, but you look around, there's a huge diverse range of habitat around here, it's just fantastic for birds and other wildlife. And incredibly important for the local population to have this, this place to come, to actually have a chance both, I mean we've been wandering around the site earlier this morning and there was, was a school party and you know the hide below us is full of people who come to look at, at the birds and also admire the new hide I suspect um, but it's very important to provide these places for people to get close to the natural world because part of our life now is so hectic that we're not actually engaging in the natural world in the way yeah, that perhaps our parents and grandparents would have done. Yeah it's, it's that connection to, I mean, to me, it's important we provide birds and other wildlife with a safe place to live but if we don't connect people to those animals and the plants that live there, they're not going to care about them. They're not going to do anything to try and save them. And we know that wildlife on this planet is in real is in real trouble. There's the losses, the numbers are very, very depressing, uh, to say the least, and very scary. And uh, you think back to the 1970s, driving around. I wasn't driving myself in the 70s, but your insect collection was on your number plate and on your windscreen. It was your, your, summer's evening. You hit so many insects. Now it's rare you get anything on your car, and that is and that's the fi- that's the food. They're the pollinators, and that's the food for our birds that come here in the summer. Our swallows and martins all depend upon that insect food. So there's some quite terrifying things going on, and we've, we've, in my lifetime we've seen that change, yeah. seen that decline. Well, you must connect people, whether it's the, the youngsters coming through, so there's a group in today from a, a special needs school in Middlesbrough, and they'll be just getting some sensory experiences connecting with, uh, with nature. We've got a great area for pond dipping. You can meet some mini beasts and bugs in the water. Uh, to adult groups who want to come through and uh, educate themselves about but if you don't connect, I mean, I worked for the Wildfire Wetness Trust for many years, and Peter Scott was their founder, and that was the change he made. Because when he started the Wildfire Trust, conservation was about fences, keeping people out of nature areas, and he said that's not going to work. You've got to turn people onto nature conservation. If you don't do that, you've got no chance of changing the way we live, the way we behave, the way our politicians make decisions. It's not going to work. So it's about getting people connected to nature, and hopefully they'll make decisions. These kids coming today will be voting for the right politicians in 10, 20, 30 years' time. If, but we must change it sooner than that. We know that. We've been saying that 30 years ago when I was there. Uh, yeah, the clock is ticking very fast. How much change have you seen in your lifetime in, in, in and around the bird world in terms of the climate impact on birds? I mean, has it affected the mi- migration of certain species? Are we getting species we didn't used to get? Are, are we not getting species we did get because of, because of climate impacts? When I worked for the Wetland Trust up at Washington, there was uh, Abbasets appeared there in 2008. That was a major thing for us, and they bred there shortly afterwards. And that was a bird you wouldn't have seen in the north of England uh, 20 years ago. Little egrets, I remember seeing a roost down in South Wales probably 25 years ago, and that was a big thing. Now the birds you get ignored. I mean, a beautiful bird, quite a striking bird. And you get one around here, there's one from the Wetland here a couple of days ago, and nobody's that bothered anymore. It's just a routine thing, and that's a bird that's drifted further north 
um, as the climate has, has changed. We've just seen a couple actually. We've been up to the other hide and we saw a couple just, you know, just, yeah. just minding their own business, paddling about with their yellow feet. So they're a classic of a bird that's moved because um, because of climate. So it's warmer where they were originally, but also much warmer here. So it's, they're able to, to migrate north in a way that they wouldn't have done before. Yeah, the conditions have been they can survive this far north, whereas they, they wouldn't have done that. And there's a concern what are they going to displace? And there comes a point. I mean, if you're moving north, it's sort of okay, but if, you start, if you're going up a hill, there comes a point when an animal that was used to colder conditions on the top of a mountain in the north of England or in, up in Scotland, it runs out of a mountain to go up to. So there's some real impacts of how does that affect the animals that have been forced further north, issues about fish stocks moving further further north. So if, if you're a bird coming back to nest in a seabird colony and the fish you rely on have actually migrated 100 miles further north, you've got a real problem in terms of feeding your youngsters. So there's lots of change we don't, we don't fully understand at a time when numbers are dropping anyway. So... And tell us about this beautiful hide, because it is stunning. Um, and this was an, a hide that was here originally, but you've um, re- refurbished, but you've also built this wonderful kind of tower extension. Yeah, it was a horseshoe ship, um, the original building, and it was quite dark. They had wooden shutters on downstairs, so if you came in and no one had opened the windows, it was quite dark and dismal. So if you placed all the windows downstairs with a brand-new set of full... Well, the bottom one opens, and there's a solid... Uh, solid glass at the top you can look through so you get a wonderful view 270 degrees around the height because uh, we've also re-landscaped the wetlands as well so we've brought the water much closer more islands more spits for the birds to be on so as it matures we'll get far more birds uh, in front of the hide but then we built this tower in the middle of what was the, the centre of the horseshoe uh, which gives you raised views across the wetland areas and uh, the surrounding landscape um, and what kind of birds are you going to be hoping to attract to, 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 to your expanded water space outside we, we get very good numbers of winter of widgeon on here. We've got lapwing all year round, and they're nesting, starting to nest now on the meadow just behind us. Um, Abbasses come here in the summer. Lots of wording birds come through. When the bird watches it downstairs, wants something unusual, something that's got a bit lost, something that should have been flying down from Mexico, uh, from Canada to Mexico and has got blown across the Atlantic. Um, but there's little ring plover have turned up. They've, they're coming here for the summer and breed, so they've been spotted, and ring plover. So lots of wording birds that excite the bird watchers. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Chris. It's fascinating. Pleasure. So I'm up here in the um, Business and Innovation Centre in Sunderland, which is for the North East, and I'm joined by David Howell, who's the Director of Operations. David, this doesn't seem a very likely place for a very wild-friendly garden, wildlife-friendly garden, but it is. is yeah. You've got one just outside the door. Yeah, it's great, and it's, it's something that's quite close to a lot of our team here, a lot of our hearts in terms of what can we do to support the environment, what can we do to support the businesses that, that are based here and certainly the pollinator park project is something that really hits hits a nerve because it you know we all we all know now and i think we've all been better educated about you know if we don't support you know pollinating insects that uh, the whole food chain could could grind to a halt in not too many years so i think yeah. it's in all our interest but if we look around, I mean, this looks like, um, you know, the average sort of business park that one would see as you go up the motorway or in any out-of-town area. Um, it, it's very modern, but it's primarily here to provide a home for commercial, semi-commercial businesses, startups. It, it, it doesn't seem the, the... One wouldn't at first have thought this was a place for a pollinator park. So what prompted you? What was the Well, it probably goes back to the, the um, why the building, why the pick was developed in the first place. It was part of a a training and enterprise council project and maybe we have to go well we have to go back this is the 25th year of the BIC so we're going back probably 27 years when 
the chief exec at the time really wanted to make a statement for the area in terms of a supportive environment for companies. <clears throat> yes, we have to have commercial premises because that's what that's that brings the money in, but also the other services that we provide to those companies um, that, that set them apart, so the more innovative companies. But in, in that keeping, I think culturally, as, part, as we are part of a European network, we've always wanted to do, do things differently. And we, we feel if we, for example, um, in no particular order, we, we've, we've got a, a platinum award for Go Smarter to Work, which is, is helping people look at alternative means of transport, getting to and from work. Um, we, we're going for the Silver Award for Health and Wellbeing, so we, we have things on here that promote health and well-being to both our tenants and our, our staff. Um, we've, we had a, um, a windmill on site when it wasn't cool to have windmills. That's been now superseded by a PV tracker, and we also have PV panels on most of the roof space, so we have six areas on site that you know, are not self-contained, but they are, they are certainly... Um, putting power back into the space so we're not having to draw power from, from the grid as much. We we now um, we have a social enterprise arm to our own offering in the, in the startup side um, and recently we've had an event where we've supported one of the, the local co-ops to bring their fresh food, food, fruit and vegetables in and homemade and there's no, the, so honeys amongst them. So, so yeah, sustainability going on, is, it's sustainability. Yeah, um, part of the lifeblood of what you do here. It isn't just a. And it's a culture. I think it's a cultural thing. And yes, you know, you look, you look at, it and we have to operate commercially. We have to, you know, bring in funding because our funding that we bring in um, from property activities supports everything else that goes around. Yeah. So it's a virtuous circle yeah. that we that we like to promote. And uh, but the pollinator park itself. Now this has been a commitment by 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 the bit to put in a. Uh, put aside a piece of land yep. that can be planted up for, for pollinating species, hasn't it? So, so is that land that you would have just left to, you know, yeah, just for people to walk across, or, or was it something yeah, it that you might have used for a commercial purpose? No, no, it's 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 a small area of of green uh, in front of one of our buildings that that are right right on the river, right on the river path, and we just thought it was that that was a good choice. Um, and, and Sharon and I went and had a look at, at various plots, and that just seemed to be right. It's enclosed. It, it's it's viewed on by the tenants in there, and I think they, we've already had interest from the, the companies that are based in the Jupiter Centre, which is where where it is. Um, and and I, and I think the more we can develop things like that, and hopefully it'll just get the message across to people that this is an important issue. And I know it's only very small, but you know I think uh, as we all know, things start from from small beginnings and if you can get the message across and there's a thousand people plus regularly use this site so if they can start seeing things like that then i think maybe that gets the message across that and from a business perspective is that something you think business park owners and commercial landlords could replicate relatively easily in their own sites yeah i mean i think it does stem of how we were set up you know, our articles and association is different from, you know, a commercial landlord, for example, and they will have their own decision. Maybe it's not their priority, you know, that, that's not for us to say, but certainly our culture, it, it, it lends itself to things like the Pollinator Park, to PVs, to, yeah. you know, recycling. But it is a call that we should be putting out to those commercial landlords, oh, isn't I it? Absolutely. Very much so. I think there's... You know, um, I know the Sunderland Enterprise Park Management Company um, is involved and has a lot of land on the park, and, and they could be looking at it, maybe having 
some areas that are are designated to uh, to pollinator park sort of yeah. pod pod areas, um, and I think more should follow. Because yeah. um, it's not uh, a huge amount of land we're talking about here, is it? It's a no. small piece of land that no. you could could repurpose. Shannon, it doesn't look like it's raining at the moment, so maybe we should go out and actually have a look at the pollinator park in in real life. Go and look at the birds and the bees and the bugs. So I'm standing in what, to all intents and purposes, looks like a business park, the sort of which you see up and down the UK off any major trunk road or A road. I mean, it is pretty much a sea of concrete and red brick and glass and lots and lots of cars, obviously. But, but, but oddly enough, um, I'm actually overlooking the, the River Weir, which is incredibly beautiful and still at the moment, and there are some birds in the background. And I'm standing on the edge of the Pollinator Park, which is the brainchild of Sharon Lashley, who is a director of Climate Action North, um, which is a community enterprise company, a KIC, that's looking at really changing the way that uh, businesses and individuals who live up here in the northeast think about the climate and encouraging people to take real action. And one of Sharon's great passions is rewilding. So Sharon has put pressure on the Business Innovation Centre, I think, gentle pressure, and encouraged them to use this piece of land to create a pollinator park. Sharon, what is a pollinator park? Well, we came up with the idea of a pollinator park, which is basically just a park, usually a business park, encouraged to plant um, areas up for pollinators. So simply encouraging more pollinators to find a home on this business park uh, by you know, planting nectar-rich and really sort of um you know um insect friendly plants that will, will will sort of grow over a period of time and then start providing a little home for the pollinators so i realized that you know looking at business parks there's an awful lot of um concrete areas that don't have um any gardens whatsoever and i worry quite a lot about pollinators about where they will land where they will find a, you know somewhere to sort of rest somewhere to 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 pollinate plants and i think it's just about joining up those corridors and joining up those places that you know we do have um, areas for pollinators to land so this was just something that we um, approached the business park about and they quite nicely uh, you know donated this land for us to plant and here we are today Yes, because it's the real lack of insects that's, a, if you like, it's, it's been called the silent killer in terms of climate change. It's the, the loss of habitat for um, pollinator species and, and particularly hoverflies and bee species, which are in rapid decline. I mean, terrifyingly rapid decline. Statistics are out that show that, you know, for every square kilometre of the UK, we've lost something like 11 species of bee and hover, um, hoverfly since 1980. Um, And they are incredibly important, as are the wasps, um, for pollinating both crops but also native plants and we're making sure that we have that biodiversity that we need across the planet. Um, And Sharon, I know that you've got colleagues who've been involved in the pollinator park who are not very keen on wasps, but but I think we've discovered that actually wasps are quite useful, isn't that right? Yeah, we did. I mean, we we tell a story, we try and sort of say that, you know, wasps are quite useful. We don't like them, no one does, but they are quite amazing insect really and provide a really good um, pollinator service for 
a food source like bread and our wine. You know, I mean, if we just try and relate something like a wasp having uh, a connection to bread and wine, I think we can't really go wrong. Yeah, the wasps are actually vital for, for the yeast that we, we need for the bread and wine. So though your picnic is never pleasant with the wasp, it would be impossible without the wasp. So we need to hang on to that fact. Um, and looking out across here, I mean, obviously it's a rather grey day um, in April, um, but in a couple of months' time, that patch of land down there is going to be full of the most incredible bee-friendly, pollinator-friendly plants, isn't it? What exactly have you got in there? Well, there's all sorts, really. There's so many to try and remember without having the actual pollinator plant list with me. But I know we've got oxide daisy, we've got foxgloves in there, we've got some... Um, dandelion dare I say it we've got dandelion because dandelions are really important um and you planted some teasel I think we did we planted teasel because we wanted the teasel to also provide um a food source at seed because we have a lot of goldfinches around this area and obviously if they can have a little food source in the winter it's something nice for that you know for someone to look out as well of their window and the businesses here and see goldfinches flying around and feeding off the uh, the plants that we've planted but there's such a variety that's gone in which is mostly um British native wildflowers though which we've been very very careful to prove the provenance of what we've planted and be very careful to, to stick to a British native um, wildflower mix as well and we've got the, the you know the summer meadow area as well which is another strip that we've, we've planted with plugs um, so that's a really good thing to um, to have as well so we've got a mixture of pollinator pod gardens we call them on an east and a west side of the garden and then a whole strip of um, summer flowering meadow as well so and actually this is not a huge space and it could be replicated on every business park up and down the land, couldn't it? And we could really create a connected corridor for our pollinating species. Absolutely, and we already have another two parks that have been in contact with us to say actually could we replicate the what we've done here at the BIC there. So it's important to realise that for not a great deal of um, funding and not a great deal of support, we can bring in volunteers, we can plant up the areas and we can provide something for those tenants of those business parks to watch grow and that's the important thing it's about watching it grow and then having a almost like a buyer blitz to say what species are we seeing what insects are we seeing and have that fun element as well as well as having a business environment much nicer to look out of your window at these rather than just yet another patch of carefully mown grass so Sharon you haven't just got a passion for insects you've got a passion for birds as well haven't you I have indeed yeah we're here at the wildfowl wetlands trust um, absolutely beautiful location and I'm looking at something I've never seen before which is a solar powered flamingo house you have to tell me about this yes well we decided to um, I approached the uh, wetlands trust in Washington to apply for some funding from Marks and Spencer Energy Fund uh, with the idea of putting some solar panels on the flamingo house and the flamingo house is really um, was, was kind of lacking in UV lighting and ventilation. So we thought that if we put the solar uh, photovoltaics onto the house, it would fuel or, or sort of power the UV lighting and also the uh, the ventilation that's operating in there with a view to hopefully creating um, the right environment for the flamingos to actually start their breeding programme. So actually have on-site you know, breeding flamingos on site rather than having to bring stuff in from uh, another source, which you know Jill will tell you about later. So really, we just applied for the funding, we, and we won twelve thousand pounds worth of funding from Marks and Spencer Energy, and basically um, we have a fully operational solar PV uh, powered flamingo house. I think. 
think it's the only one in Europe which we're quite proud of actually. Yeah, you have good reason to be proud. And they are out at the moment and they are truly stunning, these flamingos. They're absolutely beautiful. Has it worked? Have they managed to breed? I'm not sure yet and probably get more information from Jill Pipes, who is the uh, the centre manager. Um, I can't sort of see any what we call affectionately known as flaminglings. I can't see any flaminglings yet, but obviously it's got to be the right time, which is going to be a few more months' time anyway before we might see any activity. Um, but in terms of the power supply, that's sufficient, is it? Those panels that we're looking at are sufficient to provide all the, 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 the lighting and ventilation yeah. that's needed? absolutely they're doing the job um you know we we know it's been working the power is working we've got obviously on a day like today where it's slightly cloudy but we still have the light they will still be generating some power but usually in full sunlight and full full daylight they actually are generating quite a lot of power enough to to sort of power the equipment in there at the moment sustainable flamingos yeah absolutely sharon thank you so much you're welcome Well, along with the sound of the um, barnacle geese in the background, I've been joined by um, Jill Pipes, who's the centre manager. Jill, this is an amazing place. Thank you very much. We think it's pretty special. We like to think we're a little urban oasis. We're kind of surrounded on three sides by industry and distribution depots and on the fourth side by the amazing River Weir. Um, And people are always quite surprised, firstly, at how big we are. We're about 104 acres. And secondly, about how wild it is, given that we've got such an industrial setting. Yeah, it is really wild, and the planting um, is incredibly sympathetic, but also just looks as if it's been here forever. But the, this, it's not been opened that long, has it? Not in terms of, you know, wildlife parks. No, so we're just over 40 years old, um, and before the site was owned by us, it was farmland. So we've got records dating back to sort of the 1500s, where there was a number of... Um, families that farmed the land and we've sort of got some quite detailed maps of what they grew and how much they made every year from it and also how much they paid to the landowner to do it um so yeah when we took this um site on so every tree that you can see from the center building where we are now was planted by us in the last 42 43 years um and they're really nicely established now and obviously we've got a a really good succession planning Mm management plan for the for the trees but yeah we're most of the things on our site are native we've got a couple of sort of garden bed areas but we are about providing a home to the wildlife of the northeast and of this area so we want to make sure that it's kind of what they're expecting yeah, what what can people see i mean just below us are a pair of cranes stunningly beautiful cranes but what what are the um waterfowl and birds could we see if we were walking around the site? So we've got um, a range of yeah ducks, geese, swans and cranes from around the world um, so we've got the cranes here, we've got our um, Chilean flamingos um, we've got things like the bar-headed goose which is the highest flying goose in the world, they migrate over the top of Everest Goodness. fairly impressive for a little um, black and white bird um, and we've got various sort of native species as well. So we've got things like common golden eye. Um, we've got smew. Uh, yeah. So we've and we've tried and a lot of the exhibits are kind of based on what the habitat would look like um, for those birds who aren't from the UK. Okay. And are, are any of them migratory? I mean, are they your permanent um, residents or do some of them come and go? So we've got about 350 birds who are our permanent residents. Um, so our collection animals from around the world. But then um, we've got our reserve, which um, we get 
some amazing species here. So we've got the most northerly breeding colony of avocets in the UK. Um, there are species that haven't been coming to the north for that long. I think we got our first breeding avocet about 11 years ago because we very um, specifically managed um, Wader Lake, which is our man-made lake on site, to attract that sort of bird. Um, so we made sure that there was... Um, good nesting islands for them there was good loafing areas there was good areas for them to forage in amongst the mud and feed from and then in the winter we've got the uh, UK's largest inland freshwater curlew roost which can see us have birds up to about 12 1300 birds Goodness. it's pretty spectacular very spectacular and I suppose this isn't a fair question to ask you but which is your favorite I have got a massively soft spot for the Rosses geese, which are just over there. They make a really lovely noise, but along with many other people, I am tickled beyond imagination by the call of an eider duck. Um, so, yeah, they're like, we call them the Frankie Howard of the bird world. So, their mating call is sort of a whoo, which is always quite funny as you're walking past and you've kind of not really taken much notice of them. A little like, I'm here. <laughs> We might just walk down and have a chat with the Ida Ducks in a minute. Yeah, they're really worth chatting to. Thank you very much. Sharon, how did you get the money from Marks and Spencers? Because £12,000 is quite a lot. It is, yeah, but we I had already done a project previously, um, raised the £12,500, which it was then for another project in Middlesbrough, and then I approached Jill about, you know, why didn't we go for um, the £12,000 that Marks and Spencer were offering, and why couldn't we do a bid and see if we could get some solar panels somewhere in the park, and that's when we came up with the idea about putting them on the Flamingo House. And was that an application process or did you, were you able to get any sort of general public involved in your campaign to get the money? So Sharon was amazing at helping, um, you know, sort of spearhead that project and um, applying. But what was really, really remarkable was that it went to a public vote um, and four and a half thousand people voted for us against, I have to say, other really hugely worthy projects. Um, so we had sort of an email campaign and we, we looked at WWT supporters. You know, I was bombarding all the other centre's staff with emails saying you've got to vote for this. But also, you know, via social media and our membership group, Sharon's contacts as well. And it really, really ballooned. And I think, so the pinnacle of my career is that we're, we're looking at Pensha Monument here, which is a massive um, landmark in this area. And they installed lights a few years ago. Um, and it looks beautiful when it's lit up. And we actually got it lit pink during the campaign which was amazing so um deborah our market manager and i drove up one october evening and of course it was the one evening where you couldn't see a hand in front of you <laughs> so we climbed up to take some photos which looked very very atmospheric um but they did actually keep it pink for another couple of days and it was amazing and yeah like really exciting because we all used to roll eggs down that hill that the monument's on when we were kids so yeah to actually be able to use it for such a worthy cause and like i said four and a half thousand people just very touching but you are just you're one of a number of of, of wildflower and wetland 
across centres, aren't you? This isn't, we haven't just got this one up here in the northeast. There's one down at Slimbridge, obviously. Yeah, yeah. There's ten sites across the UK, including um, up in Calaverock in um, Dumfries. There's one um, in Northern Ireland. There's one in Wales, um, and then yeah, throughout England. Mm. And if um, pod listeners haven't got a site near them, but they want to do something to support and protect waterfowl and wild birds, what would be the one thing you'd ask them to do? What can the general public do to to make sure these birds are not under threat and don't die out? So actually, um, yes, apart from visiting places such as ourselves or maybe becoming members, we're really keen in in encouraging people to think about what they can do in their day-to-day life. So things like sustainable drainage systems sounds really complicated until I say, all I mean is if all you've got is a patio, can you put a big plant pot on? Because that'll retain the water. Um, And also, if everybody did that, the flood risks that are actually having a huge effect, not just on wildlife, but on people and on their homes, would be dramatically reduced. Anything that holds the water to release it slowly into the water table has got huge benefits, you know, both health and well-being-wise, but also financial, you know, to those people who own their own properties, you know, whether that's home or business. It's a massive thing. reducing runoff is really key. Reducing runoff, yeah, and and reducing your water use um, and using, um, you know, not using single-use plastics and just thinking about the waste we generate is a massive thing that we've all got control over us doing that. Think about what we're buying and how it's packaged and all of that stuff. And as we always say at the pod, many small actions amount to a huge change. Absolutely. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you to my guests and thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you about what you think about Planet Pod. You can tweet at planet underscore pod or get in touch via the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe and download previous episodes. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give us a five-star review. It helps us make better programmes. Be sustainable and stay green. Planet Pod is an Akil Sounds production hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, edited and produced by Jim Haywood, with additional research by Beth Palmer.